Can we pray as we stand? He walked where I walk. He understands. God with us, Emmanuel. Lord God Almighty, as you are present with us tonight by your word and your spirit, we pray that you would teach our hearts and our minds to be responsive to you, to bring you the worship of our lips and our lives together. In Jesus' name, amen. Do please sit. And we are, as you will have realized, in Hebrews chapter 4. You'd like to find uh, page 1203. It's uh, towards the bottom of that. Uh, Today, uh, well... Let's begin a couple of days ago. Thursday was Ascension Day. That makes today the Sunday after Ascension. And what happens uh, for the Sunday after Ascension? I suppose we have had the story of Jesus, his birth, life, death, uh, resurrection, and then Ascension into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of God. And if angels are allowed to look at anything apart... Uh, from God, then I would guess they may at that point be allowed to return the odd eye or two. I don't know how many eyes they've got. There's something between two and a hundred, it would seem, according to the biblical record. Um, uh, They're allowed to turn some of their eyes uh, back to our planet. Because the story of Jesus has him now sitting. And so, therefore, The rest of the story is not about what Jesus is up to. He lives to make intercession for the saints, we learn. He will soon send his spirit. But the question is, with Jesus sat on that throne, what will we be like? What will we do? And I want to begin, therefore, with two questions uh, for you. Firstly, who did you talk to about Jesus this week? Secondly, what did you talk to God about this week? The emphasis falls on us, on what it is that we are to be like because of what Jesus has done. Mark said last week that the problem with the letter to the Hebrews, or the problem that's going on for those who are reading the letter to the Hebrews, is the problem of drift. Now, because it's full of Melchizedek and priests and angels and blood and sacrifice, it feels a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But drift is as real today in your last week and mine as it was then, which is what makes those two questions relevant. There are two problems, you see, going on among the people who got this letter. Firstly, they weren't approaching other people from the world around them. And secondly, they weren't approaching God. 
Our writer's going to set out the challenge and then open up what needs to happen about it. There's a therefore in verse 14 at the beginning of our passage tonight. And that makes it necessary and right that we go back a little. We look into the previous passage to remind ourselves of the setup for this one. That previous passage ends on a note of threat and anxiety. Verse 11 says, Make every effort so that no one will fall or fail by following the Israelite example of disobedience. And then we're invited to learn from their disobedience by attending not only to that particular story, but to the whole of the Word of God, which is sharp and penetrating, like a two-edged sword. Now, two-edged swords, to me, feel vaguely threatening. I, um, I've, I've just um, bought for a friend, for a, for a special birthday, with, he has a, a, a Scottish uh, heritage, um, uh, and his mother gave him a kilt, I thought, well, if you're going to get a kilt, you better get the rest of the kit. So I went on the um, uh, internet to see if I could get him one of those knife things that, you know, ski and do's that slips down here. Um, And I discovered that they come in various varieties. Um, And most of them, most of what's for sale, are dummy ski and do's. Because these days, if you go to something like a... um, uh, you want to travel through an airport in your full Scottish kit, as you can imagine that you uh, would often want to do, you won't be allowed onto the aeroplane unless your knife is fake. Um, I just couldn't bring myself to buy a rubber uh, skin do. It just didn't seem right somehow. So I got the proper knife, and it has no blade to speak of at all. That kind of two-edged sword would not terrify me. And I don't think that's the kind that the writer is talking about. This thing is sharp. We're meant to feel alarmed when we read verse 12. Sharper than any double-edged sword. In the light of Scripture, everything is uncovered, stripped away, laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, if you're in their situation, getting this letter the first time, it's a situation of tension and oppression because of your faith. How are you going to react to that threat that is coming your way? Make every effort. And if you don't, the two-edged sword will get you. Well, I suppose you have two options. You can drift further away, or you can pay attention to what concerns us this evening. In the face of that tone, our lives uncovered, completely transparent to the eyes of God, The writer points out that Jesus takes that threat and turns it into a blessing. Therefore, because we have a great high priest, I think we still need to do a little work on that. Therefore, in uh, verse 14, how is verse 14 an answer to the challenges that have been raised in the verses before? Well, the word of God judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, we're told of the heart that is not making every effort to enter the rest of God. Yet we do have Jesus, and his sacrifice atones for our sin as we don't make that effort. Jesus has already, as one of us, and we've sung that, 
gone into the heavens and entered his rest. And if one of us has done it as the high priest, then that becomes our confidence that we can do it, that we can make every effort to do it, that the effort is worth it. I, I, I wanted, uh, I was just too mean to go, go out and spend money, but I wanted to put uh, um, an iceberg here and a remain here tonight. I wanted to have two lettuces on, um, on the, the shelf because um, there are two lettuces in this passage that should concern us. Uh, and the first lettuce is in verse 14. Uh, the second is in verse 16. The writer mentions them and then goes, uh, in, with what follows, goes into greater depth. The first, verse 14, uh, is about confidence in Jesus, our brother. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Have you just got it, Anne? <laughs> Bless. Um, that is, Jesus, the high priest, understands... Weakness from the inside. And we're going to come back to this. Jesus, though, has been tempted, yet without sin. Now, one of my temptations as a preacher at this point uh, is to say that if we're talking about weakness and temptation, he's been tempted in every way, then that's great, because it means I can talk to you about every temptation that you may have faced this week, or last month, or last year. Well, I could apply it in that way. I'm sure I could. But let's remember that the context here is the temptation to drift, the temptation to slide back away from the confession of faith in Christ. The precise temptation was to think that the Jewish religion might have been better after all, you know. In that religion, you could at least once a year, you could see the high priest going in to make the key sacrifice. So Jesus, who's done it once and for all, they say, yeah, but he's done it a while ago. Doesn't seem so special. The temptation here, clearly, is to give up on the faith. That's the way in which Jesus was tempted in every way. To give up, to fail to endure. It's how we're tempted, not to persevere. But if one just like us can persevere, then we can too. There's a very important piece of doctrine I want you to grab hold of uh, tonight. I have, uh, I guess like lots of us, I've got an electric drill. How many have got an electric drill? Come on, don't be ashamed. I know it's toys. Come on. Good. Okay, put your hands down. Now, my electric drill, probably yours too, um, has two settings, regular and turbo. Now, when regular doesn't work, I can flip a switch and reach for the turbo. Now, the relationship in Jesus of God and man is not like that. I think sometimes we think that Jesus is kind of normal, has a normal setting, which is human, but for serious temptation, reach for the turbo. Jesus does not reach out for godness inside him when life gets tough. He is one person. The fullness of God is expressed in him, yes, but expressed as a man on whom the Holy Spirit rests. And that matters because if we think that Jesus can reach for the turbo, 
and we know we don't have that turbo, then we are, we are stumped. We are left without power. We've only got regular. But if we recognize that uh, Jesus was one on whom the Spirit rested in his earthly life, as he does upon us, yes, with all the perfections that Jesus had as a man differently, it's true. But it is the same Holy Spirit as is available for you and me. And if one like me could manage to resist temptation, I can too. Now, it's not at all obvious that I do manage to resist temptation, but I can. You can have confidence in this high priest because he has been tempted like you. And how is that confidence going to show itself? Well, in verse 14, we hold firmly to the faith we profess. Now, notice how that's different from just hanging on to faith. It's hanging on to faith confessed out loud, faith professed. So, while it might be good to enjoy a quiet assurance, that's not what this is talking about. It's not a kind of stoic suffering in silence. Remember, the oppression is coming because these people were, being ma- were making themselves known as believers. So holding firm can't suddenly mean not becoming known. It must mean carry on being known for the faith you profess, you you articulate. And that's why I began with who did you talk to this week about Jesus? If you say, I'm a believer, but I, I don't like talking about it because it's private, then you are outside what Hebrews is wanting. Hold firm in the faith you profess, that you speak. I've heard a couple of disturbing stories recently of those who say, of speaking in this context, oh, that's for outgoing people. I I couldn't do that. I'm sorry, but Jesus says you can and should because the same Holy Spirit is there for you as is for him. Indeed, you must if you are to enter God's rest. Profess faith. Hold firm in professing faith. Now, if that then is about out there, what follows, verse 16, is about in here. In the old system, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and in there, there'd be the Ark of the Covenant, there'd be uh, angel statues at each end of it, facing each other, and they held that God was enthroned in the space between the angel statues. And from that throne, God would enable the forgiving of the sins of the people, communicated it to the high priest. The high priest went out and offered it to the people. But now, there is a permanent throne of grace, verse 16, in heaven. Access to this throne is not yearly by one person only, but permanent for all God's people. And when? In any time of need. The way to God is always open because Jesus is the high priest whose sacrifice was once for all. Once for all. We can bring any prayer to God. Indeed, let us, says the writer, bring our prayers to God. There should be no lurking doubt that we can't 
come to God ourselves, that we have to do uh, to, to come to God via anyone or anything else. Think what it means if we, if we won't pray. Pray seriously. In practical terms, it means we may as well be atheists. Because it means we are saying, well, we believe in God, but we can actually do without him. So did you last week hold firmly to the faith you profess? Did you speak of Jesus? And then did you last week approach the throne of grace with confidence? Did you pray to your Heavenly Father, bringing to him all the kind of issues that belong to any kind time of need that you may be in? And if you are not in a time of need, then regard yourself as fortunate and build up uh, strength and stock for the time when it's coming. Then all of that that we've just said, is then hammered home in language they would understand because it related to their circumstances. And it is. It's, it's taking what's already been said, but then hammering it home. And the writer wants us to get hold, once again, of two things. Priests have to be on our side, and priests have to be called to God's side. And he's going to do that by showing the relationship between the high priest as was and the high priest who is Jesus. So, verse 1 of chapter 5, every high priest is selected from among men. Verse 2, he's able to be gentle with those who who don't know the law, because they're ignorant, and with those who do know the law, but aren't following it, those who are going astray. And he's gentle because he's like them. He's gentle because he's a sinner himself. He's on the same side as other sinners. That's the one side. That's the one point. But then the high priest also has to be called to God's side. Verse 4. Aaron, the brother of Moses, was called to the role by God. Now the readers were living through a time when their high priest in Jerusalem was being imposed upon them by a succession of the puppet kings who ruled under the Romans. And those puppet kings said, here, here's your next high priest. It's not how it was meant to work. So they would feel very strongly the difference. This is what's going on around us. But what we need is a high priest, a real high priest, who will be fully called by God. So those are the two things that high priests are supposed to be like. One, they're gentle, they're on our side. Uh, secondly, they're supposed to be called to, to, be, on, to be beside God. Uh, and now we're going to look at Jesus. It's actually going to flip the order around. Uh, that's how they proceed, kind of A, B, B, A. Firstly, then Jesus was called. At verse 5. The one who was called a son, verse 5, is also the one who's called a priest forever. Now, we're going to hear a lot more about this Melchizedek. Uh, and we'll, uh, I'm going to leave that till later, because we are going to hear a lot more about Melchizedek. But all we need uh, to grab for the moment is that Jesus comes from the line of King David. Now, any good Jew would immediately know, well, okay, that's, that's great, but that's a kingly line. That's not a priestly line. You can either be a king or you can be a priest. You can't be a king and a priest. That's the way it works. High priests all came from the line of Levi. So the writer is making a very bold jump reaching back in the history, kind of sifting through and saying, where, 
where, where can we find this? There was once, in the time of Abraham, another priest referred to who was a king of Jerusalem and a priest of old. His name was Melchizedek. And Jesus, from the line of David, is both a king and a priest. So Jesus was called to God's side. And then Jesus, the priest, must be on our side, which is what's going on in verses 7 to 8. Perhaps they thought, well, Jesus doesn't really count because he's not really one of us. You know, he's got this whole God thing going on. Because these, remember, were believers. These are not unbelievers. They've come to some kind of faith. And maybe now confronted with their old heritage in the Jewish faith, they were saying, well, yeah, but it's nice that he was God. But he's not really one of us. That get God, the God stuff gets in the way. And our writer says, no, how wrong you can be. Prayer for him, verse 7, was a matter of pain and grief like it is for us. Success in prayer came for him because of something we could do, reverent submission, even if we don't. And reverent submission simply means an absolute determination to put God's will first. Although he was a son, verse 8, he learned obedience. How can, how can Jesus have learned obedience? Well, it doesn't mean that his obedience is something that started off a bit, a bit shaky and, and got better. Rather, he learned not the obedience of heaven, where it was his joy always to do the will of the Father, but he learned through being in human form what it means to be obedient when every fiber of your being is screaming out to put your own will first. Imagine how desperately you must want to put your own will first when you know that you could snap your fingers and legions of angels would come and do what you wanted The obedience Jesus learned runs so much deeper than anything that we could learn. Same process, but it runs deeper for him because he could snap his fingers and escape. And the cross was the moment when he chose, by an act of will, to hang on to every promise of God's purpose, even though he was abandoned by his friends, abandoned by his family, and even, at the crucial moment, abandoned by the Father himself. I will hold on, even though you forsake me. My God, my God, you remain my God. I will not let go of that. Why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. And so, according to uh, verse uh, 9, and so, he becomes the source of salvation. But for whom? For all who obey him. And that means all of those who take him as the model. Obeying him means following that pattern of God's will first. In exactly the way that they were being tempted to deny. Well, that's what it says. The problem of Hebrews is that it is such another world. It seems it. 
and yet is it? Every advertiser knows that what changes behaviour is emotional engagement, not intellectual engagement. It's so easy for us, even for us, let's be honest, to drift into allowing Jesus to become just an idea. All this God and man stuff, that's too complicated, let's just leave it as an idea. He becomes a a transaction on the cross, a, a mechanical thing, process, where sin gets heaped on him, yours and mine. We understand it at one level. Or he becomes a kind person from long ago. But our writer wants us to have an emotional reaction to all of this. And it begins with the two-edged sword. Uh, When I was growing up, um, there was, I think there's a a rough equivalent, but there was always um, some sort of awful um, broadcast on New Year's Eve from Scotland of people going hootsmon in not very authentic um, accents as we had our token bit of Scottish broadcasting for the year. And people would appear in their kilts and all their ski and do's, real ones, no doubt, and all this to it. And at some point, again, for no particular reason, there'd be this sword dance thing where someone would be um, uh, tripping very lightly between two crossed swords. And you were all meant to go, ooh, because it would probably have been live because it was you know, that kind of television. What happens if they slip? I think we're meant to have an emotional reaction to a two-edged sword. I think we're meant to read of that two-edged sword and go, wow, that's serious. I think we're meant to have an emotional reaction to that thought that everything is uncovered and laid bare. It's not easy to keep reactions purely intellectual when there's a two-edged sword whizzing about. It's meant to inspire in us a proper fear of what God's eyes will see and judge. And then what we've had tonight is meant to calm our fear and give us reassurance. And even though it was long ago, even though, yes, it does concern blood and sacrifice and priests and Melchizedek and all of that, it still works. Imagine, God knows your every thought, speech and action this week. Did you get through a day this last week that didn't leave you feeling ashamed? Of course you didn't. Neither did I. If you've been through Christianity Explored, you'll be familiar with the idea that uh, your thoughts, imagine your thoughts, uh, speech and actions, just displayed for everyone to see, just for, I don't know, an hour maybe, um, uh, on the screen. You'd be thrilled with that? Doubt it. Exactly. It is a proper fear. To have a fear of God's judgment in the face of who we are, And we are probably slightly in danger of forgetting that fear in our day. In the face of a holy God, what God saw for just one day, maybe just for one hour of video time, would condemn me forever because I've lived in his world, enjoyed his blessings, and offered him only my disobedience. It is a proper fear still today. And it would be no bad thing if a few more of us felt it. And even if we do not have a recent memory of a Jewish high priest in our minds. We can appreciate that whoever deals with that fear, with the reality that, pro- that provokes that fear, must in some way be like us, 
If they're not, it's just airy-fairy, just ideas. And must also in some way connect to God himself, or it's not going to work. And such is this man. But let's also be clear that if this threat is real, and this solution is real, then it's going to be for us to apply it in our real circumstances. So I repeat the two questions with which I started. Does God see you holding firm in a public, professed, open way to the faith that we so easily proclaim when we are here together? Timidity in those circumstances is not a caricature. You've got it, someone else hasn't. Someone else has courage. No, timidity in those circumstances in the face of this text is a sin. The writer is the one saying that and not me. Secondly, does God hear you taking advantage of the grace Christ won for you as you come to the throne of grace, bringing every issue that belongs to this time of need? Prayerlessness in these circumstances is not an insignificant forgetting, a bit of hurry in your day. It is a sin, and the writer is the one saying that, not me. So as we go into the week that comes, A, let us hold firm, and B, let us draw near. Someone's alarm has just gone off on their phone. Seems like a good moment, therefore, to finish and to pray. I guess uh, some of us are more likely to sin in the area that is out there. Others of us are likely to sin more in the area that is in here. Uh, Take a moment of quiet to recognize which of those you fall into. More likely to be timid in face of the command to hold firmly to a professed faith and more likely to be unbelieving in the face of the command to pray and to see God at work. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the facts of history, for the fact that in the role you played as high priest, you have done absolutely everything to reassure us in the face of what might otherwise be the threatening anxiety of God's all-seeing eyes. And we pray for ourselves whether it's in our praises that will follow or in the coffee time or once we leave this place and go into tomorrow and the weeks after, that you would give us not the, uh, a new character, though by your Holy Spirit you'll be working in our character, but a confidence that comes from recognizing what Jesus has done.
a confidence that takes us into the world to speak of Jesus, and a confidence that takes us to your throne in private to lay everything of our lives before Jesus. That by the mighty power of God, the world and ourselves would be changed. Amen.